0: Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney
1: Hyde. Good morning to you, and oh, we've got a great treat again today. Now, remember, I love getting the messages, so flick me a text, 2057, please, please, pretty please, and send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for that. This morning... We have got Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, one of our favourites, coming along, and he's going to explain for us what's called fiscal policy, which is what the government spends, and in particular, he's going to be talking about what government spends compared to what it takes from us creating a shortage, creating a deficit, government spending more money than it takes from us, and therefore piling up the debt for future generations to pay Oh, my goodness, it's shooting up. Um, So we're asking Dr. Wilkinson, who has been looking at this since Muldoon days with a Treasury official and a policy expert, what it means and where does it end? How does it end? What's going on? And also, our other regular favourite, Wally Richards is along, our gardening guru, and I know what we're going to be talking about because he's been sending out his weekly email. We're going to be talking about strawberries, shallots, garlic, and indeed potatoes, and a few other things besides. So tune in, settle back, enjoy the show. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
3: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on
1: Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Don't forget to send us a text at 2057 and uh, email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. There was a time for a while, while when governments were assessed on their performance by whether they were running a, a deficit or a surplus and that running a surplus was seen to be a good thing and running a deficit was seen to be a very bad thing. And that was, I guess, following Ruth Richardson's Fiscal Responsibility Act, which sort of put that government spending uh, at front and centre of what a government was up to. And I remember Helen Clark's government being very anxious to be running a surplus. Now, never gets mentioned. I imagine that if you ask someone in the street whether the government was running a surplus or a deficit, they would look at you somewhat quizzically. And to be honest, if you'd asked me, I would sort of say, oh, yeah, I think they're running a deficit, but I don't know how big it is. Well, to explain where we are on the deficit and on what's called fiscal policy, which is government spending, we're joined by a reality check favourite, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson from the New Zealand Initiative. Good morning, Bryce.
4: Good morning, Rodney.
1: Now, we're going to be doing a lot of numbers, I suspect, and we're going to be talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. And it's very easy for people's eyes to glaze over and to lose track of it. So we're going to have to take this carefully. So can you start? by explaining what's been happening to government spending and the deficit and the debt this past little while. And I'll give you the context. I read a report that said it's forecast that the interest bill to the New Zealand government, which means taxpayers, is forecast to be larger than what we spend on primary and secondary education, which I can understand is a lot of money. So, what we're spending on our schools is to be exceeded to be what we're paying just on interest because the debt's getting that big. So, can you explain what's been happening to spending, government spending?
4: Yes, um, we could we could start with Labor's fiscal plan before the. 2017 uh, uh, general election. And um, some readers will recall that um, there was a big furore over Stephen Joyce as Minister of Finance at the time, saying that Labour's fiscal plan had a hole in it. That's um, right. I
1: to remember that.
4: And um that fiscal plan uh was uh, projected uh, that labor could manage the economy with doing only a very small increment in government spending over the next five years um and uh, Stephen Joyce, I think were you know largely lost that debate, and um nationals still outpolled labor, you will recall, but Winston but- Peter's,
1: just remind us, Stephen Joyce said that there was a a big fiscal hole of some billions of dollars in their plan. Was that yeah. correct?
4: Yes, that's right. And um, Burl had done the work and um, said, no, no, it's it's uh, consistent with uh, what Labour's told us. And Burl is an economics consulting group
1: that ad- advises yes. the Labour Party.
4: Yes, yes, commonly the Labour Party. Okay. Um, and the problem, essentially, the problem was uh, that if, if Labour had kept to the plan, there wouldn't have been a fiscal hole. But uh, as I saw it, um, the plan was never consistent with what Labour was intending to spend. And in essence, um, each each government... Uh, assumes that they're not going to pay any wage increases in the public sector because the, the fiscal, Treasury's fiscal projections are done on a no policy change basis. And since there's no policy at the time to increase um, public sector wages, uh, they to cover that, they provide a generalised provision for operating allowances for unallocated future spending, and Labour in its fiscal plan essentially took um, Bill English's provisions for things like uh, wage increases, price increases and the like, and converted them into committed spending, but not spending on public service salaries. Now, Labour wasn't complaining, campaigning on the basis that there'd be a, a, a public a sector wage freeze for the <laughs> next five years. Um, and that's not what transpired. It's been um, uh, paying uh, you know, cost of living and other, other wage increases, and it's still going through that again. So what happened was, as the future unfolded, um, Labour's spending was greatly exceeding the spending it had provided for in the fiscal plan. For a while it was a bit lucky on the revenue side, so the uh, Bill English had you know, spent nine years converting the big deficits he inherited from the Clark Cullen government, which were made worse, of course, by the global financial cra- crash and the Christchurch earthquakes. So Bill had spent about best part of nine years wrestling with big fiscal deficits, and finally converted them into a surplus and then just on they... that note yeah. um
1: he was extremely tough and i was fortunate enough to be a minister briefly in that mm-hmm. period and just just to tell listeners how tough it is every minister around him wants more money and that his friends and his colleagues. And he's the only one saying no. And it was extremely tough. And I can remember sitting outside his office, waiting to see him, and have a minister walk out of his office crying,
5: mm-hmm. bawling
1: their eyes out, crying, because he'd said no to their, you know, favourite plan. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, that's extremely tough job right to keep yes. their spending down
4: yes and most ministers um most ministers of finance aren't up to doing that um we we saw we saw it happen 1984 to 19 1984 to 1990 when there were three ministers of finance so the numbers were a little bit better, they had, they had mutual um, support. So that was Roger Douglas and um, Richard Prebble and David Cagle, and they held the line very tightly and then Ruth Richardson came in and she was, she was of the same ilk. But since then, um, oh, Bill Birch, to do in credit, uh, did keep the reins reasonably tight. But um, then we've had so many years of Labour governments where they've started off with um, fiscal surpluses and ended up with uh, big fiscal deficits. And uh, this government's no exception. This government, um, so it was blowing out expenditure um, very significantly faster than in its fiscal plan before COVID hit. But when COVID hit, you know, the, 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 the blocks... The the checks and balances just came off and it allocated sort of 40, 50 billion on COVID-related spending. And that's the problem which um, ministers of finance are going to be wrestling with probably for the best part of the next nine years.
6: And it went out
1: with no particular reckoning as to costs and benefits. And the tragedy is the next government is going to be in trouble trying to get spending under control again, just like Roger Douglas, just like Ruth Richardson, just like Bill English get into trouble by trying to keep a little. They're not even trying to reduce government spending, they're just trying to stop the acceleration,
4: right? Yes, um, and it, it's important to say that um, New Zealand's not as in, in as bad a shape for public debt as, as places um, which are far more important, like the USA and Europe and and the Bank of England. So you know, Ruth Richardson brought in or her, her government with Jim Bolger, a fiscal uh, responsibility bill and put that into the Public Finance Act and um that did put emphasis on prudent levels of debt and uh having a plan when you when you got into deficit for restoring surpluses or budget balance and i think that stood new zealand in pretty good stead until now um the the covid crisis uh was Used well, it, it, it just blew it all apart. Um, it was big, big spending, tens and tens of millions of spending, uh, without uh, all done in a hurry, uh, with public support, uh, given the, the freeze, but um, just kicking all the costs and the pain of that into the future. But now that's over, yeah.
1: mm-hmm. shouldn't we go back to
4: where we were? Yes, yeah, and um, the there's there's concern about uh, treasury in this because up to two thousand and, and and they're the ones who really um, adjudicating an, uh, as to what is a prudent level of debt because they have to give the minister of the incumbent minister of finance advice about that, and um, prior to COVID, they were um, Talking about low levels of public debt has been prudent. Um, and, and I, I it was more like 10 or 20 percent, depending on what the definition was, that was being used. But 10 or 20 percent.
1: 10 or 20 yeah, percent
4: of GDP. Okay. Yeah. So so much lower than it is now. It's running at more and more 40, 50 percent now. And Treasury really came out with a a rather weak. Uh, report supporting a much higher level has been sort of consistent with a prudent level of debt, and a lot of it depends upon what you think the future interest rate is going to be. Because, um, as as you were noting in in your introduction, uh, when your public debt's quite high and forty to fifty percent of GDP is pretty high, hundred percent, which is where the U.S. is, just looks. Uh, really scary. Um, as interest rate rises on the public debt because inflation is getting the way and all that, you uh, interest payments start to take an increasing um proportion of tax revenues. so it becomes a bit of a, a vicious cycle uh, when the interest and um when the interest rate greater than the the economic growth rate, the debt burden is rising faster than our national incomes to finance it. And you can end up borrowing mm-hmm.
1: you can end up borrowing and paying ever more interest payments and you're running faster and faster just to stay still.
4: Yes, you start borrowing not only to roll over your maturing debt but also to cover the interest payments. and then as anyone who's wrestled with a, a credit card problem or a mortgage problem knows that's uh, that's something like a death spiral, something's mm-hmm. got to be done.
1: And why does it matter to me what the government deficit is, whether it's, or, and debt? The, so the deficit is what's happening that year, as I understand it, and the debt is the total. So is that correct?
4: Yes, that's right. What, when the government's doing it on your behalf or my behalf or, you know, on behalf of households, it's like it's running out uh, debt for you on, on your credit card, but you're not seeing it because it's on the government's credit card. But the government's really you, it's it's really householders. The only way it can pay down its borrowings is, is by getting it out of households. So um, it seemed very good to everyone at the time. Government was paying these big wage subsidies, which was a major thing and uh, shuffling out money on so-called shuffle-ready projects and the like. And it was as if it was uh, free goods. People weren't noticing it uh, in a negative way on their household budget. What what they were getting was the benefit of the wage subsidy. So their wages seemed to be coming through anyway, even though they they, they weren't working or producing. Nearly so uh, uh, I
1: was, getting, I was getting paid to sit at home and watch Netflix and eat chips, and order yes. pizza, and beat the COVID. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Go Jacinda. Everyone yes, was saying try. the economy's
6: amazing that it's hanging up. But it was done on borrowed money. And
1: so at some stage, well, we're certainly now paying the interest on that borrowing.
4: But- yes, that's right. If you'd been borrowing in your own name, you would have seen your credit card debt rising yes. or, or your mortgage debt rising, and you would have felt uncomfortable about this. Um, but because the government was doing it and, and was being presented as benevolent and, and having largesse, um, the government was giving the impression that it was a free good. It was really helping people. Yeah. But um, it's 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 basically delaying the pain. And
1: when we spend government money now and
6: then, as long as you're borrowing, you're not a you're you're sort of borrowing for present
1: consumption, aren't you? It's not like you you're sort of having a holiday now paying for my holiday on my credit card and I just run up the debt, which I have to pay interest on at best. And at worst, I have to start paying off to maintain economic credibility. So when we say, oh, government should spend this money on teachers or hospitals or uh, whatever, that is money now that is being borrowed from the future. Is that correct?
4: Yes, it is at the moment. The government's running running quite a sizable deficit at the moment, so um, any new bit of spending um, which it's doing is uh, putting it on the credit card, basically. So
1: if we if we give more money to teachers, which everyone accepts is a as a very good thing or if we put more money into the hospitals, which everyone accepts is a very, very good thing, every time we do that, it's not you and I now that are paying for that, it's us in the future or our children that are paying for that.
4: Yes, that's right. Um, I wrote, wrote an article you know, a week or so ago, um, memo to Mr. Hipkins, um, taxpayers' money is not free, and it's it's it was a response to his um speech to the party faithful, um, where he was telling everyone all the all the things which um the government had created which were free, uh free childhood, key, sort of free first-year university subsidies. Um and it was as if it was really free, that no one had to pay for it, um, all those things. But the reality was that um, taxpayers have to work to earn the income which they get to pay the taxes. And there's lots of things they could have spent that tax money on better education for their kids, um, um, you know, a, a lesser mortgage on the house or d- doing up the house, getting it a bit warmer, a bit cleaner. So people sacrifice to pay the taxes. And then um, the government sort of gives it away as if it's free and as if there's no opportunity cost and if it's really helping people. But it might be helping some, but only at the cost to others. But there was absolutely no acknowledgement um, in what um, Hickman was telling people that there was a cost to this. So, people lose sight of the reality that something has been given up. And it,
1: it. Yeah, and it seems that our sort of legacy media, the the news, has been hollowed out. So, when a budget gets reported, these bigger picture numbers aren't reported the same. I mean, it, as I said in intro, it, it seemed to me it used to be quite a big thing whether you are running a deficit or a surplus, whereas now it's not even scarcely reported upon as a thing. Yes. it's, it's free. Politically, it's very easy for Mr. Hipkins to be running a deficit because no matter how long he lasts, it's not going to be his problem.
4: Yes, well, that, that's always right. Um, yes, when you're coming up to a general election that you might... Lose. Uh, there's a good chance you lose. The temptation is just to spend up large and um, to try and win. And and um, you you could be lucky if you're elected that you know the economy could take off for mm. overseas reasons and you get a lot more revenue and it looks okay. Or uh, you could be lucky in that you lose the election and the next government has to spend the next yes. uh, three to three to six years wrestling with the problem. And, well, let's,
1: um, let's just yeah. take that thought experiment. Let's imagine that Mr. Hipkins lives forever and Mr. Hipkins stays on as prime minister and Grant Robertson as minister of finance, and they keep spending and spending and spending and spending, and spending.
6: And keep running deficits what ultimately would stop them from doing that
4: what well what happens is the electorate gets dissatisfied um, with with the outcomes. Um, as I say, sort of interest expense takes up a bigger and bigger proportion of tax revenues and um You know, people feel disgruntled about the the poor outcomes they're getting and the amount of taxes they're paying. But governments get tired too um, of it because they get frustrated because they're spending all this extra money, but it's never enough. Well, it never can be enough if people are seeing it as free. So, which they do, I mean, if you pick up the newspaper any day of the week, um, like right now, for example, it's teachers who want greater pay, or principals do, um, none of those groups ever have to say, well, who should miss out? Um, why the extra the extra spending on them is more valuable than spending it on hospitals or yeah on uh, welfare beneficiaries or the homeless or or better houses for people. Um, The the, the dialogue in in the media and the way it takes place is, well, teachers deserve more money, therefore they should get more money, but no acknowledgement that it's going to be at someone else's expense. And is the, uh, the advocate's need really greater than the need of someone else? It well,
1: we, got, yeah. we got conned onto child poverty, and no one wants to see kids miss out, but it was the idea that we'd vote Labour, and they would fix child poverty. And lo and behold, I see that the Greens are saying it's still not fixed, and that we can't address climate change properly until we fix child poverty. And that's a funny one, isn't it? Because child poverty really pulls at the heartstrings. And so I hate to do this because it's not the way we should be thinking about the economic pie, but the essence of it is, is that if we, the logic of it is, if we pay teachers more money, then child poverty misses out. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the crazy zero-sum game that we've got ourselves into thinking about with government. And I guess that's what you're saying, that people become disgruntled because I'm a teacher, I'm not getting enough. Mm. And then, but government is sitting there saying, well, I'm trying to fix child poverty um, and we haven't got enough money for that. And you're weighing up child poverty against teachers, against pensioners, against hospitals, against everything. And it's made worse If there's inflation running like it is and higher, because everyone feels they are falling behind.
5: Hmm.
4: Yes, that's right. It's, uh, you know, mainstream public debates just got so detached from reality. Um, Another way I sort of think about it is um, for a long time, you know what's the value of a human life? Uh, we would spend five million dollars on making a bend in the road safer, if if we thought that that was going to save one human life in a road crash. But take Pike River, there there was awful loss of human life there. But then uh, uh, the government spent something like fifty million, um, not reopening the mine, not recovering the bodies, but purporting to try to do so. Well, statistically, at the time, that was sacrificing ten lives on, drive, on the roads. It. You could have spent yeah. that fifty million um, improving the road road safety and saving ten lives. So, but people had no seemed to have no concept that the fifty million following up spending on on Pike River, not achieving anything obvious, not recovering the bodies. Were, had a serious opportunity
1: cost that's a great example, Bryce, because I followed the Pike River debate reasonably closely. and when the government committed that expenditure, there was no thought they would get a body there, 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 that was cons- they were never going to enter where the bodies were. It was the most peculiar thing because the spending had no tangible benefit attached to it, but mm. it was the spending was the performance. it was I'm committing this money because I care about the families and Pike River, and it was terrible, and so I'll give this fifty million for n- even as I'm committing it, it's not pie in the sky. it was like the plan had no benefit written into it. You know we might find something, but the Royal Commission said you won't mm. it was the most peculiar thing
4: yes I, yeah i agree it was it, sort of baffling it was it's, it's as if treating money as free as being compassionate,
1: yeah, <laughs> but then you see once you start thinking along those lines, if we look at So called child poverty. And I say so called because, like, a child ideally is being looked after by the parents. Now, that doesn't always work out. We understand that, that it's not tidy, and we all feel great compassion. But we don't sort of have a child poverty issue. We have a sort of mum and dad problem. But If you looked at it, and I think even Jacinda would know this, that putting more money through the big welfare machine isn't going to fix child poverty because there's a prior problem of mums and dads not looking after their kids. That throwing money through welfare quite possibly makes worse.
4: No, it could easily do so. I mean, anyone who's been a donator or a benefactor, yes, if you give away money carelessly and irresponsibly, you are just going to make matters worse.
1: But again, it didn't matter, did it? Like Mm -hmm. the politician doesn't have that in their thinking. I'm going to fix this problem, Pike River, child poverty. How are you going to fix it? I'm going to spend money on it. Same with mental illness. Oh, what are you going to do? I'm going to spend money on it. But no tangible outcome. Like you're not looking at child poverty and saying, gee, was the problem here is the government is not spending enough. Um, And again, we're getting this performance on spending rather than that hard look. And so those poor kids are going to grow up. Poor and stay poor because they're going to be paying for the money that government spent on them to s- stop them being poor. If you know what I mean, it's so bizarre.
4: Yeah, it's it's terrible. i um, in in that report I did some years ago on on the welfare issues and welfare policy. Um, you know, I just called it the the intergenerational transmission of misery. You, yes. You've got some some families have a, a very small minority, but no one in the family's worked for three generations. Yes. So there, there's those poor kids, you know, they they've uh, very few of them will be able to escape that sort of hopeless, hopeless environment. Um We know uh, from Lindsay Mitchell's work in particular that um a big source of the problem is uh, is is sole parent families, uh, and it's particularly fathers who are not there. Their weight, and we know that the biological father is usually uh, the, the best protector of, of their children. It's um, particularly bad for kids when um, de facto sort of males or cousins are moving through the household and they've got, they've got the ability to brutalize kids who, who are not theirs. Um, There's, um, and I give enormous credit to Bill English for bringing in the social investment approach and really trying to get the focus on what programs uh, will actually help people, help them um, extricate themselves from their circumstances and get back on their feet and and get into, um, you know, work, which is the social activity, and and gives a sense of dignity and participation and uh, contributing to the society you're working on. And um, there's there's just no silver bullets, but that was a way of actually trying to spend money more responsibly Mm. and trying to make sure that you're really helping people and not perpetuating uh, the, the difficult situation they find themselves in on. But, yeah, in recent years, like the mental health, the one and a half billion for that was it the, the 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 emphasis instead has has been on on compassion as announcing spending a lot of money on something, but not actually having a program for it making is, sure it's going to produce good results.
1: It's quite funny when you read on not so much in the media but on blogs and you discover through opposition questioning that money has been allocated to achieve some good result, such as mental health, and then you discover it's not been spent because they haven't figured out actually how to spend it even, Um, which is an extraordinary uh, scenario. It's an odd politics that we have. You mentioned Chris Hipkins talking to the Party Faithful and standing there about how he's made everything free and free this and free that, and you doing a memo saying, well, you know, ultimately it's taxpayers that are funding everything, and it must be a matter of priorities and where you get the best result. But it's all sides, because the nature of our politics is set up that the recipients of the money love it, and when a budget's read, and it doesn't matter whether it's a national-led government or a Labour-led government, everyone claps enthusiastically when the minister announced extra spending for this and he's presented or she's presented as a magician. For magicking up this, oh, and I've got another $500 million for child poverty. Yay! And everyone claps, how did he do this? How did she do this? It's a miracle. And I've got another $200 million for this. We never once, or there's no votes in not spending money or saving money. So the whole thing's geared to spending more and more money, bigger and bigger government. Less personal responsibility, larger and larger debt, and a poorer and poorer performing economy. Isn't that the politics is driving us into this into this position?
4: Yes, um, they uh, and uh, uh, we'll pay tribute to the controller and auditor general here. I think too, because he's been writing reports, sort of stressing. The importance of spending responsibility, responsibly, Mm. and actually trying to establish that the benefits being produced from the spending, and um, I think we really need our watchdogs. Um, Now, you and I, Rodney, you know, have favoured ratepayers' bills of rights in the past and taxpayers' bills of rights. The analysis of the problem is 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 that what we're looking at is there's not enough discipline and constraint on on spending. The the question of what are the benefits relative to the costs are simply not being addressed satisfactorily. The controller and the auditor general is pointing this out, but really all he can do is point it out, Uh, no action needs to respond to that. The, the the government of the day doesn't need to take action as long as it thinks people are going to enough people are going to vote for it. So um, the, the consideration and aspect you and I have thought about over the decades, Rodney, is um, well, what's, what's the missing voice here? The missing voice is, of course, the taxpayer or ratepayer's voice, the people who are sacrificing some of their income to pay it to government in the hope that it's going to be spent um, for a positive net benefit. And so that's still where I'm at, is that the more we look at this debacle where um, everyone is, is wanting more money from government as if it's a free good, and applauding government when it gives out free prescriptions or something, as if it's doing people some good. Um, where it could be just leading to greater wastage of medicines, um, is, is a system where uh taxpayers can get more, and ratepayers can get more of a say when a significant spending proposal comes along, or when there's a proposal to raise more tax money by raising tax rates or by broadening the, the definition of income and so getting more more money in that way. And um, that's still where I'm at. The system we're looking at is not providing value for money. It's, no. it's squandering imagine, far too much money.
1: Imagine if we had to write a cheque each week to pay for government, how angry voters would be.
6: Yes, you know, that's right.
1: They have the, the money is taken out of your petrol uh, and you don't see it. Uh, It's taken off everything you buy and you don't see it. And it's taken out of your wages and you don't see it. Very, very, it's so, it's hidden by legislative fiat. Um, it, It can't be, no taxpayer can even discover what they're paying. Um, So imagine if we didn't have any taxes and uh, you were assigned, you were assessed each year how much income you got and therefore how much you should contribute to government. And and each Friday at lunchtime, you had to write a cheque to the government. And if you didn't, you'd go to jail, which is effectively how the tax system works, except you're not writing the cheque. And man, if you had to write that check every week, thousands of dollars, um there'd be a political revolution.
4: Yes, that's right. It's um it, it's the lack of transparency is giving the impression of it's a free lunch and and the costs just aren't being acknowledged or or built in and after the decision making. So all those things you've specified are right. People aren't aware of what uh, the, the the programs we've got are really costing them. And a poor wee baby,
1: <laughs> a poor yeah. wee
4: baby being born today with
1: a big debt around its neck um, because of government, what it's doing right this minute.
4: Yes, that's right. And, of, of course, it's, it's more complicated, as I'm sure listeners are, are saying, well... Uh, it's not all even. Um, not all house power payers and taxpayers, no. not all households and taxpayers. So um, there's on top of all this of uh, not enough attention to what's been forgone, what 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 people are having to do without in order to meet the latest demand is the hope that um, it is free because some other household is going to be made to to pay more. And that's quite fractious from a a community cohesion point of view. Um, If if a whole bunch of households are predatory towards other households and uh, are convinced that the burden is not going to fall on them so much as others, then that that adds a perversity um, to to the way people vote too.
1: Yes, indeed. And I mean, I find myself having to check myself because I have never felt resentment before, but I'm starting to feel very resentful. And I find it particularly bad because it's being split racially. Yeah. And um, I find myself resentful to Maori because I feel as though it's unfair that they're getting an unfair advantage politically, an unfair advantage in what they say, and and compared to my vote, and it's terrible the feeling of, uh, of resentment. You can also feel it with your tax dollars that when I see. Uh, money being given to groups often racially um, or for Pike River I get resentful and um, particularly so when inflation is eating away at your shopping bill and every time you're going to the supermarket it's a bit more it's a bit more it's a bit more you're going you know do something, fix your house up, fix your car up, it's always costing a whole lot more than you had expected. And we're fueling that resentment, which is very divisive in society.
4: Yes, that's uh, yeah, that's one of my biggest fears too at the moment, that uh, we're on a track which is going to polarise society in a nasty way mm. on racial grounds. Um so and unfairly because oh, the average Mary oh, yeah. is doing it tough
1: like the rest of us. Um yeah. that's the crazy bit. It's the money is uh disappearing into a, into a hole, um, but it's being carved up uh in a way. And I mean, you feel it when you see these um eco-loons getting in your way when you you know, you know see it overseas and they're trying to stop people from doing things, get to their work, and then you read about them in the overseas newspaper and there's some rich kid um, who's had a private school education and they're stopping a, a bus driver or an ambulance driver from getting to work. And it's this antagonism that a predatory state, which is a state that is handing out Income, willy-nilly, and your taxpayers, willy-nilly, it creates it, doesn't it? It creates this division and it's pitting us against each other.
4: Yes, yeah, it is. And it's one of the great perversions is that it, it's been done in the name of equity. <laughs> um, uh, but but it's it's a false concept of equity. The you know, you know, economists have this, this concept of horizontal equity, which is that if two people are in the same circumstances, then they should the state should treat them the same. Um, but now, you know, uh, two people could be have the same health need, but if they've got the right ethnicity, they're going to get preference. Mm. Well, that can't do anything else but um, promote resentment. I would mm. have thought. Um, and out of uh, the obvious lack of fairness to it. Another another aspect of the current fairness uh, concept is that average outcomes for Māori on on most dimensions are worse than the average for the population uh, as a whole. And so then the argument is that it's fair to disproportionately target one group on the basis of race than another, but that's lost individuality at that stage. So that goes back to my point about loss of horizontal equity, but it's also losing track and this is going to be very nasty for future society. Um, if you're looking at the race-based allocation of spending, then someone's going to st- talk about the race case, the race, um, sourcing of the funds being spent. And um, that's going to polarize people further because, mm. um, yeah, how where is fairness if it's been dished out on, on a preferential basis of race, but it's also been raised on a preferential basis
1: of race? So, because we've become so racially aware, if you're what you're saying is if you're spending money. According to race. Yeah. You're also collecting money according to race. Yeah. And disproportionately, non Maori are paying more than their fair share. Yeah. And getting less back.
4: Yeah. And that's what this loose use of equity is driving the country to. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It's like the two sides of a coin. The yes. current concept of equity is only looking at one side, where the money's going. It's not looking at equity on the other side through exactly the same racial lens. Oh, my goodness.
1: And, of course, a big, um, this is going right off the topic, but American Civil War and other civil wars get fought along these lines, don't they? When One identifiable group is feeling marginalized compared to another identifiable group by government preference. It, as Tom Salt points out over and over again, it does lead to political tensions that can readily convert to violence.
4: Yeah, that's right. And, and the, you know, my biggest fear is that. We can't have an adult conversation about this without being called a racist.
5: Mm. Now,
4: if if reasonable people can't discuss this, well, the end of the road is you're going to get unreasonable people, white mm. supremacists and things, taking to the streets. And uh, you get... get it could get civil civil unrest on a really serious and impoverishing scale of you know destroying uh, each other's treasures on the basis of what's going to hurt the other side the most. you know cutting down the tree, the, the trees on one tree hill struck mm. me as something of that sort of ilk. Yes. Yeah, what I fear most is that um, if we can't have a good dialogue about this amongst reasonable people, then it's going to be taken over by extremists. That's right, absolutely, on all sides. And, of
1: course, we had the dramatic example of our friend Don Brash, who was ex-governor of Reserve Bank, ex-leader ex of the National Party and, indeed, ACT Party. So... A very mainstream establishment figure,
4: absolutely
1: being denied, deplatformed at Massey university.
4: Yes, that was just woke madness, and and and, and the grounds for doing so is furious. <laughs> and and you couldn't meet in all your
1: life a more reasonable human being.
4: No, I agree with
1: that. And yeah. so it does open the door for um, extremism and inflammatory language because you, yeah, yes. <laughs> it's, it's we know exactly what we're saying. Um, mm-hmm. Bryce, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. We started off covering off deficits and debts, debt and billions of dollars in numbers and political spending and then we led to not just the economic consequences of that, but the social consequences of where this can readily lead. And I thank you for your insight and breadth of knowledge.
4: No, but thank you, Rodney. Yeah, we, we both know these are really important and, and sobering and concerning issues. So yes. Being, but being the... able to find a forum where they can be discussed is so important.
1: Well, we're hoping with Reality Check Radio to do that, and we have it as our mantra that everyone gets an opportunity and no one gets abused, and um, we're hoping to get a a wider range of people on, but we we do value it because um, if you can't have a civil debate, the alternative is terrible, too terrible to contemplate. So that was... Bryce Wilkinson from the New Zealand Initiative, I would say um, the smartest man I know and always a man so aware of government spending and government policy and with that quiet reserve of someone who actually knows what they're talking about rather than shooting from the hip and Who goes back looking at government budgets all the way back to Mr. Muldoon? So he's had some experience. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send us a text at 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening.
0: You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
3: you have heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, reality check radio, rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real with me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker.
0: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
3: The man who cares so much and whose background is for real. Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.
7: Mark.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Reality Check
1: Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send us a text, 2057. Send us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And you especially want to send us a uh, a text or an email if you've got a question for our next guest, because it's, drumroll, Wally Richards, our gardening guru. Good morning, Wally. Good morning.
5: How I got to tell
1: you yeah. I've got to tell you, Wally, you and I are sitting here, you're in Martin, I'm in Arrowtown. We've just both got our woolly hats on. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not like the modern generation that turns up all the heaters. We just put woolly hats on and and uh, dress warm. So that's pretty funny. We're gonna be talking about that for the gardening, but I've got to tell you, I got your I get your weekly emails, which I love, and you've got me growing sprouts, right. And I've had my first crop, and I are loving it because they're delicious. I Ooh. put some in a salad, and I put them on omelets. And mostly, though, I just, when I feel a bit peckish or something I want to stick in my mouth, which is every five minutes, I put in a few sprouts. What? And they're gorgeous. Yeah.
2: Good, and you're looking healthier as a result.
1: <laughs> I am, it must. So what I got was I got that little container for $20 from Bunnings, mm-hmm. and I got like four levels, and I bought the seeds, King Sprout seeds, and I sprinkled them on. I got the sort of ones with the radish in it, which are quite hot. I got the ones with were green, and then I poured water in the top, Several times a day and would drain it. Funnily enough, I didn't get much growth. So I thought, I know what, it's too cold because it's like the highest it gets in my house, I'm afraid, is like 14 degrees because we have been cold. Mm. So what I did was I put a bit of boiling water in the bottom tray and they all sprouted except the bottom tray because it was probably too hot. It but right. I, I, uh, I'm I slowly adjusting that. But that's a great trick. Tell us more about growing sprouts, Wally.
2: Right. Okay. Well, it's a simple thing to do. Um, in the old days, we used to put them into an AG jar with a strainer. We'd um, put the seeds in there, put the water in, uh, leave it there for a day, and then we'd tip the water out with the strainer over the top, which is just a wire mesh, a bit like your um, sieve. Sort of That you have for the kitchen. And that would let the water go out, but keep the seeds in. And then we'd put some fresh water in, and away we go. Ideally, non chlorinated water, of course, none of this poison to go into the seeds. Because plants, when they germinate and grow, they'll take up any chemical that might be present. So if you're going to put in chlorine, chlorinated water, my goodness, you're take, just taking another poison into your body. So that's a no-no. Okay. Now, these days, the um, modern way to do it is to have that three or four-tier um, sprouter, which mm-hmm. means you've got different levels in which you can sprout in, and as a result of that, um, you get – it's much easier to do because it's you don't so need to.
5: easy.
1: And and the water goes by, it took me a while to figure it out and I thought I wasn't doing it right. But you fill it up with water over the little funnel at the bottom and a sort of capillary action drains the water all the way through the levels. And um it's so much easier than using a, a, a jar. And once I warmed them up, a few days they're growing and they're eating.
2: Right, yeah, it doesn't take long at all. Now, sprouts themselves are a superfood. So uh, when you sprout, you've got a really good food supplement there. In just a moment, I'm trying to get rid of this telephone thing.
1: You've got so much business happening there, Wally, you you, you, you don't know whether you're Arthur or Martha. Now, yeah, true. Now I, well, can, We can't say that anymore, I guess, because you, you could be Martha going to Arthur.
2: Oh, yeah, you're confusing everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you can make them into super sprouts by adding minerals into the water. Ah. Now, I don't know if you've got our product, Magic Botanic Liquid.
1: I'm going to get some straight after the show. I'll be on your line. Right. Now,
2: Magic Botanic Liquid is basically humate and fulvic acid. It's mineral-rich from prehistoric times, and I liken to call it at times – Um, prehistoric compost tea. Um, It's black, it's full of minerals, and when you use that in your garden, plants will grow basically twice as fast, twice as big, right, by spraying it on the foliage on a regular basis. Now, when it comes to sprouting seed, it helps the germ get established much, much faster. So if you'd had that, you probably wouldn't have had to put the hot water in the base kernel because I I had one guy, he rang me up one time and he says, I use your black magic stuff on my pumpkin seeds and next day they were sprouted. It was that Ah. fast. What's it called, Wally? Magic Botanic Liquid, or we refer to it as MBL.
1: Got it. And And so... How do I use it with my sprouts?
2: Okay, so you'd put about 10 mils into a liter of water mm-hmm. and on your top tier, um, you would put that in water and that together. And as a result of that, um it would go through, and as the seeds are germinating and growing, they would take up all that goodness out of the magic botanic liquid. And as a result of that, you've got super mineral rich sprouts, which are going to be that much better for your health.
1: Mm. Well well, I'll get that. I'll be on the on the phone ordering that, Wally. Now, how do I apply that and when do I apply that to the garden plants?
2: Um, basically at the beginning, When you've got some foliage, uh, like you've germinated seeds, but even going back to the seed stage, you put your seeds down in a seed tray or in the garden and you spray them with the Magic Botanic Liquid, right? Mm. That will get them to sprout quicker, sooner, right? Mm. Once the foliage is up, then you can make up the MBL into a trigger sprayer, have it handy, it keeps, it doesn't go off. It's already a couple million years old, so it's good for another million years or two.
1: It's dinosaur poo,
2: and you just go and spray the foliage, say once a week or once a fortnight. Wow! Um, Now it's incredible the difference it makes. There was a chap in Auckland who loved growing roses, and he was telling me um, how in Auckland it's difficult because of the uh, climate. Uh, humid, and also the temperatures. Compared to down your way, Mm -hmm. growing roses are far, far easier to grow and get better results. So, in Auckland, by the time it gets to around about January, February, the plants are often covered in disease, rust, black spot, um, very little flowering, no buds to come, etc. That's normal. He, He told me that he used the MBL at the beginning of the season and every week he sprayed the plants. He said, It is now February. He said, My roses are beautiful. He said, They do flower, hardly any disease. And he said, Now some of them have perfumes they never had before.
1: My right? oh, goodness.
2: He said, my next-door neighbour's roses, and he's a keen rose grower, he said, they finished for the season. That, that, that's shocking, right? And that's the difference. The following year, he actually rang me up and said, um, great news, I, I've won the gardening competition for the street. <laughs> I use it on all my garden, you know. Mm. The following year, rang me up and he says, "Oh my God!" He says, "They won't let me in the garden competition anymore. My garden's <laughs> too good."
1: <laughs> you're a great, you're a great advocate. I'm getting some of that. Um, by the way, I'm boiling a big stockpot. we we've got chlorine in our water now, and I'm boiling a big stockpot of water for fifteen minutes on the stove, and then pouring it out overnight and letting all the chlorine waft off it and that's what we're drinking, and that's what we're using on my sprouts, and um, so we're keeping the chlorine out of our systems, Wally.
2: Right. Actually, this water thing, um, the fluoride um, Mm -hmm. that they want to put into our water supply, I just read recently a peer-reviewed study from the United States that proved conclusively it dumbs down children uh, the IQ uh, reduced down significantly as a result of having fluoride in their toothpaste and in their water supply. right?
1: Wow! And they're hell bent on doing this, aren't they?
2: Yeah, they want to dumb us down. That's that's the key. Mm. They don't. Well, don't Work on me. <laughs> brilliant people <laughs> in the world who can criticize. <laughs> so. And the other aspect, of course, is we don't know these days what's coming out of the sky. No. So what I've done in my particular case is I bought a little distiller from overseas, um, and, in fact, I bought several of them, and I've got them on sale on my website, Um, $300, normally around about $450 for a brand new one I see on Trade So, we're selling these for $300. They do four litres at a time and it's pure H2O. But the problem that I see and I read about is that if you drink a lot of uh, distilled water, it can actually strip minerals from your yes. body. So, that after you distilled the water, you can add the minerals back in. Now, how mm,
1: I'd have it, the poison,
2: yeah. I, I put a bit of magic botanic liquid in. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's perfect well because you had
1: you look I'm looking at you now and you've greened up a bit
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and no, I th- think you're an inch taller
5: there's yeah
1: do you do it 10 mil a liter sorry for drinking do you put 10 mil in a liter or a bit less
2: um just enough to color it up so we're putting probably about five or ten mils It's not very much it just changes it from clear to just slightly discoloured. Uh, you could put more in. It's, okay. it's, it's not going to hurt you because there are human preparations of magic botanic liquid under a different name, human and acid, but they're very expensive. Mm. In fact, I had a lady once. She used to come to my garden, uh, not garden centre, but my warehouse in Palmerston, and she'd buy five litres of MBL at a time right? And one day when she was getting this, she said, I don't use it in my garden. I said, what? What do you do with it? She said, I give it to my horses. I said,
5: really? Uh-huh.
2: And then she told me this story about this horse she rescued, which was really crook. And the vet said, look, you're wasting your time. Put it down. It's the best thing to do. She said, no, no, I'll see what I can do. She said, I gave it the MBL on a regular basis, along with, you know, good food, etc." She said it took six months, but I'm riding that horse now.
1: My goodness.
2: Brought it back from the dead.
1: My goodness. Oh, wow. Um, and tell me two things. How much does your MBL cost? Is it expensive?
2: No, no, it's not expensive. Um, it me a second, I'll tell you.
1: Okay. Because if we're going to be... Drinking this and pouring it on our plants, we want to know what it's going to cost us. Five, Wally.
2: 500 mils is $15 carapy. Okay. One litre is a bit better, et cetera.
1: Okay. So, and that would last a while, right? Oh, yeah. Ten mil, yeah. yeah. 10 yeah. mil a litre. So a litre is going to make um, ooh, 100 litres. A litre, 100 litres.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Something
2: along those. Mm. You're, you're good at maths.
1: No, well, I've taken too much fluoride, maybe. I'm not sure now. Um, so I had another question. Oh, and so when you do it on your plants, on your foliage, it's 10 mil a litre also. That's the best mix yeah. in your, your thing. Now, the distiller, does it plug into the wall and mm-hmm. sort of boil the water and it gets the steam?
2: Yeah, it creates the steam inside itself. And at the top is a fan, which is cooling it, and Mm -hmm. so it just rips out into your catching container on the side. Mm -hmm. And, um, hey, Presto, uh, it takes, I think, I've got the information there. It might be 12 hours to get four litres. So it's not fast. Um, It doesn't use much electricity, and once all the water's been used up, um, it turns itself off, so there's no danger of overheating. And then in the bottom of the thing, when you take the top off, there'll be some yuck. And really? that is what was in you, your water that you were going to drink. Really? Yeah.
1: And you can clean that yuck. Yep. You and just then wash do it out. Four liters. Yeah. W- and what and Sorry. is it noisy?
2: Uh, no, it's it's fairly quiet. Um, There's a little bit of a sound, but not a lot. Mm. Um, what I do is once we have taken, because you've got this container which you catch the water in, I put a bit of MBL into that. Then I put it in the fridge, and there it is, nice chilled, uh, beautiful water. And my partner was saying when we first started doing it and putting the Magic Botanic Liquid in, she said, I notice a difference with my health. I, I, I feel better. And it's because she's getting minerals into her body naturally mm. through the water. Mm. The alternative to that, you could use something like Himalayan salt. Yeah. say so about a pinch of that or yep. a quarter of a teaspoon of that to remineralize.
1: Because everything's been stripped out of our food pretty much, isn't it? Like you're getting a beautiful looking tomato, but it's not rich in the minerals and nutrients that your body necessarily needs. So So, you can be doing your best, not buying packaged food and not eating out and you're cooking at home. But if your raw material, uh, your water and your um, vegetables uh, aren't high and these minerals or nutrients you are missing out. So that's a very, very good tip. Well, I've really, once you alerted me to it, Wally, um, I've become hyper aware of the smell of chlorine in our water. I notice it in the morning. Um, you turn that tap on and it's a strong whiff if I stick yeah. my nose down. And before I was oblivious to it. So thank you for that. And the sprouts, um and I hadn't realized that there's all these different sprouts that you can get. And then I went online and I found that there was like a, I can't remember the name, where I could get like a 500 grams or a kilogram of sprouts seeds so much the cheaper than just going right. into Bunnings. And so I, I've I've done an order and um, I'll just be sprinkling it in on sandwiches Uh, and salads, and uh, my favourite is on omelettes. And my real favourite is just walking past and dipping my hand in and eating some sprouts because they're lovely. Right. For that tip. Now, what should we be doing in our garden?
5: Okay,
2: this time of the year, strawberry plants. uh, The new season strawberry plants are out in the garden centres, but I was alerted by... um, a garden centre person from Mitre 10 in Christchurch the other day he emailed me and says, um, be careful, there could be a big shortage of strawberry plants this season because of the storms and Gabriel, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, uh, some growers have lost their crops, of course, and they were the ones that were, or some of the ones that were supplying the home garden market um, with strawberry plants. Back in days gone by, you used to be able to go into a garden centre and you could um, just get a, a bundle, well, not even a bundle. They would be loose in a tray and you'd take 12 strawberry plants and it was quite reasonable. Nowadays, we don't see much of that. Maybe some garden centres still have loose strawberry plants or in bundles. Um, nowadays, we see them already uh, growing in a punnet Um which makes them more expensive, unfortunately. But then again, if you like strawberries, um, Mm. the key is to get some planted in as soon as possible because the earlier you get them in, the sooner you get to eat strawberries. And we have a trick, and it's called a product called microsin. Now, strawberries love microsin, and microsin. Is spelled M Y C O R R C I N Microsin. Bit of a trick.
1: You're Name. gonna have to spell that again.
2: Warren. Okay. M Y C O R R C I N Microsin.
1: Got it.
2: Some people say like, Coruscant, It's it depends. It's phase or vase, whichever you prefer. So now what you do when you get your strawberry plants, ideally you can drench the soil after planting them with a ratio of one mil to a litre of water of microcin, right? And then into your trigger sprayer, you can put your Micron. Uh, I think it's 10 mils from memory, to a litre of water. And once a week, ideally, you spray the foliage of the strawberry plants. It's a food, but mainly it's a food which feeds the microcyllium fungi in the soil, oh, which wow. increases the roots of the strawberry plants by up to 800%. Wow.
5: Right?
2: So that means the plants have a great feeding area, and as a result of that, they're getting more nutrients, more moisture, etc., And within... A couple of days of spraying the strawberry plants, you can look at them, you can see they've changed. They've actually grown a bit, right? Now, we have proved that if you do that from the beginning of the season to the end of the season on a weekly basis with the microsin, you will increase your crop by up to 400%.
1: My goodness.
2: Yeah, it just makes them grow like you wouldn't believe. They'll fruit earlier, they'll fruit bigger, they'll fruit longer. I had a gardener one time, he read this that I'd written, and he said, I didn't believe you. So he said, I decided to test it. I I planted two rows of strawberries, the same variety. One I sprayed weekly with um, with Microsin. The other I didn't. He said, you're right. He said, I've got heaps of those plants that I sprayed compared to the ones that I didn't. I've still got a reasonable crop, but nothing like the crop I got off the Microson sprayed ones.
1: See, I can't understand why you're planting strawberries now in the middle of winter when everything else you wait till spring.
6: It's establishment, and
2: besides that, we're coming up for the um, shorter day very shortly, so our daylight hours are going to start extending in approximately seven days' time.
5: Yeah.
2: So there's going to be another minute or so each day added on, and, of course, plants need the light and the, mm-hmm. the growth. Strawberries traditionally, um, it's probably because in May – is when the growers would lift the crop uh, to sell the plants uh, because at that point of time uh, we'd have uh, the autumn rains, so the ground's wet, lifting would be easy, and that's when they'd go out to the garden centres around about May, June period uh, for sale. So if you're keen on strawberries, um, get them in. Those people that have already got strawberries um, from last season in the gardens, they will be looking a bit shabby at the moment. Um, They need tidying up, uh, remove the dead leaves, etc. There may be runners uh, which have come out from the parent plant, and if they're rooted in uh, to the ground, you can carefully lift them up and cut the runner off, and they are new strawberry plants if you want to Start another bed. I find a bed of strawberries is good for two to three seasons if you use the micro mm.
1: uh,
2: And and also
1: you can get runners for the following season. So mm. you could be. Um. And when, if you planted them now, when would your strawberries be ready to eat? Typically,
2: you'll probably be eating strawberries before Christmas.
1: And how long would you be getting uh, strawberries off them for?
2: It, it depends a little bit on variety. There's probably a dozen different varieties that you can get. And I wrote an article just recently. You might have seen it on strawberries.
1: Mm-hmm, I did.
2: Right. And and I listed uh, some of the more popular varieties. And it depends where in New Zealand you are as to what type of strawberry okay. does best for your area. Um. So anybody who wants that article, they can email me and just ask for the strawberry article, and I'll flick that to them, and they can work out which ones to buy themselves.
1: So down here in uh, central Otago, would I be best to put my strawberries in my tunnel house, Wally?
2: Um, yes, because um, commercially they're grown in glass houses, hydroponically, tunnel houses, etc. Um The advantage of your tunnel house, of course, is you're protected from the elements, Mm -hmm. um, so they're not buffered by cold winds and things like that. Uh, And, yes, they will probably thrive in there. One of the ways I used to like doing it was I'd make up a trough, wooden trough, right, using tantalized timber, but after I'd made it, or before I assembled it together, i paint all the tantalised trimber with a couple of coats of acrylic paint to seal the tantalised mm-hmm. chemicals in,
5: mm-hmm.
2: put it together as a trough, only about, oh, where's my ruler? It would be about 200 wide. Yeah. That's millimetres, and a depth of about, yeah, looking towards 200. 200. But, yeah. but, you know, your fence, your yeah. um, corrugated iron fence with its railing, yeah. I, I would actually affix it to the top rail ah. of the fence. Now, it was out of the way. It was easy to pick. In fact, the strawberries tended to grow over the side, and, and you just see them there. And because they're over the side of the uh, trough, uh, birds couldn't get them.
1: Oh, because they couldn't rest. No,
2: they couldn't. There's nowhere <laughs> to sit to eat, eat the strawberries.
1: <laughs> you meany?
2: And yeah, spray with that. Now, here's another interesting what, one. What
1: do you plant them in? What What's the best sort of soil mix for strawberries?
2: Um, If you can get hold of horse manure, uh, that that does really. Oh, well. I've
1: got right. truckloads of horse manure there. Okay. Right?
2: Okay. And I use a compost such as uh, Value Compost from Bunnings. Yeah, um, I find that's a good one. Uh, it's mushroom compost-based. Yep. There's no herbicides in it. Um, and it's very reasonable price, like about mm. $4.80 for a 40-litre bag. And, and that's my preferred one. Um, Odorines also produce a good compost, but it's dearer than that. But some of the other composts, a lot of bark, chips mm. and stuff like that,
1: You put your manure in and then your compost on top.
2: Yep, yep, and you plant into that. So the roots are going down into the manure. Yeah. And the manure can be quite fresh. It doesn't matter. Um, And away they go.
1: Do you drill drainage holes in your um, trough that you're growing them in?
2: I'm not a good carpenter, so it would be some cracks and gaps and so forth. <laughs> so,
1: You'd have natural it, gaps.
2: Yeah, it, it wouldn't be flush, flush, right? So, But you could do, yeah, you could uh, fill some holes through it, but I found they'd drain quite adequately. Um, and the other story I have is a couple of years ago a lady rang me up and she told me, in fact, she emailed me and she showed me some pictures of strawberry that she'd grown and they were big as apricots. They were big, really big strawberries. And, and she told me she'd taken some of our um, Wally's Secret tomato food and fed them with that. And she said the results were incredible. Mm. Okay, so I thought about that and I thought, well, very good. So we formulated slightly different sort to of tomato food, Wally's secret strawberry food. So, first of all, you could use the micron to get a bigger crop longer. But if you want bigger berries again, a quarter of a teaspoon every month or so to the plants uh, of our Wally's secret strawberry food.
1: Wow. Well, I'll tell you a funny thing. I was out at my um, tunnel house yesterday with my good wife and I saw these strawberries sitting up there. And I said, oh, did you buy these strawberries? And she says, no, I got them a year ago and never planted them out. And they were just sitting in their little tubs. Um, right. Will they be okay? Yeah, no problem. She just She just had them sitting in the shed. And, and
2: nice green foliage, they yeah. they look
1: okay. I thought you just bought them that day.
2: Right. So they must have got good light.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know. Because you've got to appreciate, um, Wally, up until a couple of months ago, gardening and me weren't a thing. And so okay. my wife would have been off buying strawberries and I wouldn't have noticed. Mm, True. Um, I only thought of strawberries, you know, in a punnet in the supermarket, not something that you planted. So this is all very exciting to me. So I'll get my strawberries and I'll probably put them in my tunnel house. My tunnel house is going gangbusters. And I actually, it's so cold down here at the moment that I find myself hopping in my tunnel house to warm up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good one.
1: You're working out and you think, oh, I'll have a spell and I've got a thermos with tea and I actually hop into the tunnel house and I've got a seat and I sit there and I just warm up and then have a spell. Um, and I'm when I get organised, I'm going to build myself a beautiful glass house and I'm going to make sure I've got room for a seat yeah, and a wee table because it's so wonderful sitting there amongst the plants.
2: Right. Uh, hence, like, People that can put a conservatory on yeah. the side of their house for the same reason. You yes. can grow your plants in there, tomatoes, whatever you like, and you sit in there and, and it's lovely and warm.
1: Now, I'm a little worried about broaching this next topic because it's garlic, and <gasps> I have already planted my garlic. That's good. Well, I'm worried because now I'm going to hear how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And I just Googled it and did what Google said. So tell me, now's the time to be growing garlic, yes?
2: Yeah, traditionally in New Zealand, we plant garlic on the shortest day and we harvest on the longest day. So 21st of June, in go the garlic um, little um, corns and separated from the bulb, right? The, the key is to use the big, fat ones. You'll get best results. If you use the skinny little ones, right, uh, you'll get a, a bit of a result, maybe, but it won't be particularly good. So the bigger, the fatter the actual corns are, the better off you are. Garlic, um, getting the bulbs or the corns is a little bit harder because about three years ago, a dreadful disease came through New Zealand, which was rust that affected garlic, right? And then in the past, it was simple. You just shoved some cloves of garlic into the ground. You didn't have to do very much, and you ended up with a reasonable thing. If you added some food into that, um, so you fed them because they are what we call gross feeders, they love their tucker, right? So if we do that, um, you'll get a, a nice big uh bulb and which will have lots of nice fat cloves on it. So suddenly people growing garlic were devastated. The plants round about <sighs> Yeah, what time of the year would it be? Probably somewhere going into late spring. This disease would attack and the foliage would be covered in rust spores. Now, as a result of that, of course, the leaves weren't able to get all the sunlight because most of the leaves were covered in rust, and as a result of that, your um, bulb underneath never grew much at all, if at all, right? Mm. So when they came to harvest, nothing underneath of any consequence, and we tried everything. We tried copper sprays, sulfur sprays, potassium permanganate combination, the whole lot, and yet still the garlic rust persisted. It, it seemed immune to everything, and it was a real problem. Um, some of the commercial growers they lost the the whole crops completely um and once again there was a shortage of garlic and so we started to see from overseas the american garlic and the chinese garlic coming in to the country for people to use in their cooking well two seasons ago um i spoke to some very knowledgeable people um from a firm in Australia called Nutratech, And the chap that actually looks after New Zealand, he suggested that we should try the cell strengthening or silicon uh, strengthening products on the garlic to see how that would go in regards to combating and preventing the garlic rust. So the original use that we... We're using um, cell strengthening for was for the tomato-potato psyllid, which attacks tomatoes mm-hmm. and completely destroys the plants, kills the tamarillos, and you end up with your potatoes um, either. No crop of any consequence or the crop can be okay, but inside the potatoes, when you cut them open, dark rings. Now, this psyllid came into the country, oh, what? probably about, oh, it must be about eight years ago now, right? And it came through the country and literally with commercial potato growers like at Oak Picky on the way down to um, Shannon, um, all along the road used to be potato growers. Nowadays, you go along that road and there's not one potato grower. They, they were totally decimated in regards to the psyllid because the amount of spraying they had to do was so often to get a crop out that it was ineffective, uh, it was too costly. So they just gave up. So we found that by strengthening the plants, and, and this actually came about by a tamarillo grower up north who had paddocks full of tamarillos, no problems at all. And yet down the road, another tamarillo grower had lost his complete business, right, to the silic. So by checking it out, it was found that the guy that still had plants there um, was growing in silicon-rich soil Mm. And because the plants had grown up in that condition they they were really tough. so the sullid, which has a weak feeding mouth, he when he hatches out as a nymph, he can't pierce the feed as a result of that he starves to death immediately, right Excuse me a moment <coughs> got a frog in my right. <coughs> Okay, so we decided to use um, cell-strengthening products on our tomatoes, potatoes, and tamarillos, and hey, Presto, it worked. My <laughs> bad, goodness. bad infestations of solids, um, which we tried using neem tree oil, chemical sprays, etc. They helped. They didn't control because... The populations, when the temperature gets into the mid-20s, the population grows is incredible. Like there's from a few to a few hundred to a few thousand to a million in a very short period of time. And, of course, the problem is not only are these um, nymphs feeding on the plant, but they inject a toxin into the plant. That causes a major problem. With the tomatoes, tamarillos, etc. And it basically kills the plant. So, by strengthening the cells of the plant, starting off when we plant, um, we overcame the problem. And it didn't matter how many millions of adults were laying thousands and thousands of eggs, never did one become an adult. We broke the cycle and it worked a treat. Now, interestingly enough, One of these products um, we had many years ago, and we used to call it DE because it has a diatomaceous earth base to it. And some gardeners actually use it on their stone fruit trees in the uh, beginning of the season when the leaves are starting to emerge and when you get the curly leaf problem. And they found quite reasonable success by spraying the foliage on a regular basis with this product. Of course, what it was doing was toughening the leaves and making them less prone to catching the curly leaf disease. So, on the same basis of that, we drenched the soil of the garlic plants after they sprouted and it got some roots with the silicon and boron soil drench.
6: And we do that two weeks later, again. Excuse me. Then we mix up silicon
2: super strength sprayer with a um, spreader, which pushes it in to the plant. And as a result, we spray the plants about every week as they're growing, and so for two seasons now, I've had perfect garlic.
5: Wow! rust,
1: and so what is it you're, you're using? What's it called? Silicon boron mix? Is that's what it's technically called?
2: That's one. There's three products. There's the boron and um, silicon soil drink. Right, so. back. we've got the silicon and boron soil drench. The reason for the boron is for the plant to take up the silica from the root system because the boron encourages it. We use that only twice because if you use boron too much in your garden, you can end up with a problem called boron toxicity. So we do that. We mix up the silicon Cell strengthening spray with the super spreader. And we spray the foliage on a regular basis, which is like once a week. Made up in a trigger sprayer, it keeps, so we don't have to discard. We can just use it, put it down, pick it up week later, spray again until it's all gone. Now, in doing so, it actually makes the foliage bigger because silica helps helps with the photosynthesizing. And when I used these products on tomatoes the first time when I had a a real solid problem, I was amazed. The tomato leaves were about two to three times bigger than they would be normally.
5: Mm.
2: And I asked them, well, why is this? And they said, because the silica helps the plant photosynthesize better And so it gets a bigger leaf because it's getting more energy from the sun, right, by having a bigger – it's like having a bigger solar panel. Mm. So, yeah, it solved the problem, and it solved the problem with the rust on the garlic.
1: So you do that with your tamarillos, with your garlic, with your tomatoes. Uh, What else would you be doing that on? Potatoes. Potatoes. Wow. Wow. Right. So um, it sounds like, Wally, I'm going to buy myself half a dozen trigger sprays and have them well labelled and have the right mixes in and have a bit of a routine for giving my plants a spray. Right, yes. And you'd still put your magic botanic liquid on your garlic and tomatoes as well?
2: Yes, yeah. It's compatible, so you put that in with the spray. Yeah. Um, Magic Botanic Liquid itself has a nice little amount of silica in it. Okay. So it's an add-on.
1: Okay. Well, and apart from needing to do that, I think I put my garlic in a nice horse manure soil mix. I planted them the correct depth. I planted them up the right way. I'm sad to say some of my, I bought, I didn't know what to do. I I, I got confused. I bought like s- garlic seeding plants. I didn't know whether I could just use the ones in the supermarket because I was worried that they had been treated not to sprout somehow. So I actually bought um, sp- specific garlic seeds. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yes. Is, can you plant the ones from the that you'd normally be eating?
2: Um yes and no. Sometimes they do treat them so they don't sprout. <laughs> Excuse me, which some people have found. Um so it's better to buy the ones that will sprout. And okay. I, I suggest not to use the Chinese garlic. Um I, I've never done, and I've heard that you shouldn't. Um because it's an inferior garlic.
1: Yeah. Chinese garlic is a uh variety of garlic.
2: Uh no, it comes from China.
1: Oh, well I know. And don't it comes
2: know. in those um packs. It's quite oh. cheap. Like you get a whole lot of bulbs in in a in a pack thing ah. uh, in the supermarket. Um I know my partner, she buys it to make um Salted peanuts. Oh, but uh, when I got yeah. the
1: seed ones, they won't be from China, right? No, no. Okay. I, I um. By the way, there's a great garlic grower in Kingston down the uh, bottom of Lake Wakatipu, and I went out and I picked up a table saw from him six months ago that I bought on trade me, and he had an empty section, and he was growing. Colossal amount of garlic, and when I was googling about garlic, I came across his web page, and he's growing all these amazing varieties of garlic, and it's actually a very interesting crop.
2: Mm, mm. Is that tomato?
1: I think it is.
2: Yes. Yeah, because I uh, found them on the internet, and I ordered some of all the varieties they had. They have tomato pearl, tomato fire. Timati Rose and Timati Royal. Now, when I got the order from them, they didn't have the very big bowls. Yes. In most cases, I'd already sold, so I got the smaller ones, but still good, 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 like um, right there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a beauty.
2: Yeah, yeah, still good size, but they said that's second grade imagine what first grade would be like. Oh,
1: really, no, because... he was into it, and his wife was making beautiful furniture. They had quite the, they were very ingenious. And that came from Kingston, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah um, no. They're on the internet. Yes. Um, whether I've got any garden left now.
1: I know they sell um, out. You'd
2: have to Google. No, they would sold put... out,
1: I think. But people have a look, and you can put your order in for next year. And it's such a popular crop. Now, mm. I also, Wally, um, maybe ill-advisedly, I'm about to learn, planted shallots. Right. Was that the right thing to do?
2: Yeah, yeah. Similar to garlic, um, same sort of thing, horse manure. All all those plants are what we call heavy feeders, cross feeders. And so if you give them plenty of tucker and spray them with magic botanic liquid as they're growing through the season, you'll end up with great, great stuff.
1: By the way, my horse manure now, and deep inside, you wouldn't know it was horse manure. It's just this rich black dirt. Oh, lovely. Um, And I've put a lot of um, straw with it, and that's breaking down, and it just looks like very, very rich soil. And my, even within six months, (laughs) the soil that I've been growing in has actually become, it's gone from being very clay to being beautifully rich soil now. Right, lovely. Um, I'm, I'm going to start preparing my ground for potatoes. So yep. my plan there, Wally, and I know not about not digging it, but because the soil is rather poor and um, my plan is to dig Two shovel depths mm-hmm. and pour in a shovel depth of uh, horse manure right? and then put the dirt back on so it'll be sitting high and then sort of leave it till I'm ready to plant my potatoes. Does that sound underplant.
2: plant? Right. Okay. And where you are, did you grow potatoes last season? No. Nope. Okay. So you don't know if you've got a solid problem or not? No. Right? And, and more than likely, you haven't. So okay. probably not a problem in that regard. So you could plant... But for people that do have a of problem, what they should be doing, because psyllids are temperature-related, once the temperature gets into the mid-20s, they breed like rattlesnakes. They're really bad, right? But colder temperatures or hotter temperatures, they don't breed much. right? Mm. So... If you've had a problem last season, you should be digging a trench now and digging it a good spade depth or two spade depths, right, taking your sprouted seed potato and putting it at the bottom of the trench. Now, what I like to do and I advise people to do is put about a teaspoon of gypsum, a few sheep manure pellets and a little bit of a product called BioFoss, which is – Natural, brokenly down rock phosphate underneath the potato, and sit that on those, and then just cover it over with soil. Right now, because it's covered with soil and the sprouts are covered, of course frost won't hurt. Yes. Now, as the sprouts come through the soil, then you cover again, a to protect them from frost, and b to make the home taller and taller and taller. So as long as the sprouts only just get to the surface and don't get two or three inches tall, this will work. In other words, as the potato grows, it will form new potatoes all the way up to the top mm-hmm. of the trench and then a new mound and it will form right up in the mound so you end up with a big crop of potatoes. If you allow the tops to get up two or three inches above the soil before you cover, you've lost it, right? It's got to be covered pretty soon after it comes through the soil.
1: So just to clarify, the sprout comes up and the sprout's not green.
2: Yeah. the, the green. green leaf.
1: green. Yeah. Okay. So it's coming through in its ground. I bury it. Or do I leave a bit of green on top?
2: No, you cover it. You just cover it. Yep. Cover the whole thing.
1: So it's not getting any photosynthesis going on.
2: No, you're stretching
1: it. Okay. So it'll grow towards the
2: light. It'll come through the soil again. And cover it. Yeah. And then you put some more soil over the top.
1: Wow. And And just to cover it. So do I let it have a little bit of sun, like you say, let it get two or three inches?
2: Well, Put it this way, if you're in a frost area and it's out with its foliage and you have a frost, oh, it'll go black. Yeah. Kill it, right? So each day or every couple of days, you're going out, checking out, yep, and you just put a bit of soil just to cover. Okay. So and the soil insulates it against frost. Now, once you get to the top of your uh, trench, um, then you start to mound and mm-hmm. you keep mounding up. And then by the time you finish your mound, you pass your frost time, and you've got a good crop of potatoes forming under the soil, right? And the temperatures still haven't got up, warm enough for the solids to become a problem. And then you can harvest your potatoes before labour weekend or thereabouts, depending on variety, of course. Um, and. You've got good crop, lots of potatoes, no psyllid problem.
1: And I remember you saying, Wally, that when they're ready, cut the tops off so the silids can't get them but leave the potatoes in the ground as storage.
2: That's mm, true, because if you leave the tops on and the temperatures come right, the silids will attack, inject toxins in, and then the potatoes underneath, instead of being nice, pure, lovely potatoes, they'll have the dark rings, and the dark rings means no no good to eat.
1: So I got all that. Now, in Otago, when would I plant my potatoes? Now. Really? Yeah.
2: Oh, in the well, bottom of the trench,
1: yeah. Wow, okay. I'll get out there. After the show, I'll be making an order, and I'll be heading out there, and I'll be trenching up. now. To get the potatoes, I'll just go to the supermarket, get the potatoes that I like to eat, and let them sprout.
2: Mm. If you take them home, put them in the kitchen, um, the warm temperature in the kitchen, uh, as you know, when you buy a bag of potatoes, after a week or so, or two, um, they'll start to sprout. You keep them of... in daylight? No, at that point of time... It's not necessary. Like, like if you had a hot water cupboard, you could pop them in the hot water cupboard. Okay. The warm temperatures would get them sprouted. Now, as soon as they actually show some sprout, then they go out into the light. Okay. Because it, what we call, we green them off, okay. which means those sprouts become green and hard, not soft. Like if you leave them in the bag in the hot water cupboard, you've got great big long sprouts, miles long, Useless.
1: Okay. And do you believe in cutting your potatoes and keeping, like if you get two lots of eyes on a potato, you can cut it in half and get two seeds, or do you keep the whole potato?
2: Um, If you're Scottish, you peel the potatoes, you plant the peelings and eat the potato. <laughs> and that's all you need to do. Doesn't I mean, say, if you be- peel potatoes, right, and, and the eyes – um haven't been damaged and you throw that in the compost heap or whatever, they'll sprout. and they'll, You've got a potato. In the, in the war, in the Second World War in England, um, people used to do that. that, that um, peel the potatoes and plant the, the peelings.
1: My goodness. Well, it's like everything wants to grow. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had Wally Richards, the gardening guru. Now, he will take your phone call if you've got questions or orders to make. And his phone number is, if you've got a pencil handy, it's 0800 466 464. And you can email him at WallyJR, Jr. at Garden News. It's Garden News with one N, not Garden News. It's gardenooze.co.nz. And um, as you'll have heard through this uh, interview, people have been calling up, wanting got questions, wanting to make orders. He's lovely to talk to. And even I've had people tell me that they've made an order with Wally and he's rung them up to check exactly what it is that they want. Um, so he's a very, very hands-on um, service agent and supplier. Uh, you love gardening, don't you, Wally? Yeah, for sure. You just, yep. it's in, in, in your blood. Well, you've given me... So much enjoyment, um, just improving the soil has enriched my life. And like I say, uh, I've been eating these sprouts. I've got I've got my garden growing, and I'll be getting my potatoes in. Um, how long does it will it take me to sprout my potatoes if I get them in a bit of a warm area?
2: Um, good question. How long is a piece of string? Um, it depends, okay. uh, possibly on variety and so forth. See, with potatoes, you have some very quick maturing potatoes, which Mm -hmm. only take 60 days, and swift is one variety of that, okay? And then you have what we call early crops. Now, they're not really early crops at all. It's just that it takes 90 days from the time they sprout, planted, to harvest. And then we have main crop, which is like rua is a main crop, um, and they take 120 days from sprouting, planting to maturity. Early crops, um when they flower and they produce flowers on the what's the name? That means the crops ready with the main crop, they actually flowering finishes and then you harvest the crop.
1: Okay. And the supermarket ones don't have sprout suppressors on them. Yeah,
2: the supermarket ones that you buy um, can sprout quite easily. Okay, uh, there are seed potatoes which um, are guaranteed not to have a virus. So the like a high health potato, mm-hmm. which is what uh, Morgan Smith Lawrence um, okay. from the South Island, they have good quality uh, seed potatoes. As comparison to um, seed potatoes grown in Pukeruaire, which are not such good quality, okay. because the South Island, as you're probably well aware, have the best potatoes in New best Zealand. Potatoes,
1: yeah, that that you, they're a meal. That's so they beautiful. are the best. Yeah, I have a problem because my wife's not as keen on potatoes as I am, because I grew up eating potatoes with every meal. I love potatoes, but she's sort of more of a salad lady. And I just think spuds are to die for. But um, when I'm growing them, they'll taste so nice that we'll eat more potatoes because I think they're a beautiful food. Mm, Yeah. Particularly with lashes of butter and salt. Mm. there you go Mass Wally, or Whatever. oh yeah Wally it's so much of a pleasure uh, talking with you, I've got plenty to go on so with our listeners uh, please send us a text 2057, send me an email inbox at realitycheck.radio call Wally 0800 466 464 he'll love to take your call Wally, thank you for another lovely gardening guru thank you thank you
0: This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.
1: You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And then we come up to my favorite thing of the week mailbag. Oh, I so love hearing from guests and I love hearing from listeners. And I love your comments. I love your suggestions. It is fantastic. Please keep them coming. You can text me at 2057. Send me an email inbox at realitycheck.radio. Let's go through the mailbag. Oh, it's not only bonkers, it's deceitful. This is concerning. The fact that you can change your birth certificate as of tomorrow to say that you were born a woman or a girl, even if you weren't, uh, or a man, whatever. Uh, Imagine your child growing up, falling in love, and not being told, wants to have a family, and then is told the woman they married is a man. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh. Here's one from uh, Damien. Hey, Rodney, our birth certificates are already worthless and do not identify us. Our our certificate of birth, RGN9 source document, is the only proof of identification. Oh, I don't know, Damien. I'm, I'm sure you're right. Uh here we go. Um thank you for standing up to this utter madness, Rodina. Hee <laughs> hee. I totally agree with you. Sadly, falling out of love with my home country. Appalling. Describe so many areas and areas, and it's one thing after the other. That's how you feel, isn't it? Um you can imagine being confused and bewildered in one aspect of New Zealand. But it's absolutely everywhere you look. And uh, I think it's designed that way because we're so confused um, that we're rendered incapable of dealing with it. And again, that's why I think Reality Check Radio is so important because we can work it through all together and begin to understand it. Uh, It's so wonderful. It's been wonderful for me. So I hope it's wonderful for you. I uh, hear someone saying that it's because they're bullies, Rodney. Uh, I agree. I don't know what it refers to in that comment, but we are being ruled by bullies. Uh, the media are bullies. They bully you. If you disagree with them, they bully you. They 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 call you names, which is what bullies do. And we've seen with Kelly J. Keene that they, like bullies, resort to violence uh, to stop people who they disagree with. The bill proves our political leaders are not in control. There's a higher world order pulling the strings, divide, confuse, conquer. Also, all of these latest bills passed an affront to God. Many will be deceived. Paul. No, I agree with that too. I think when you say pulling their strings, it's not a direct pulling, but it's just flowing out of these world bodies like the UN. And our politicians readily sign up. They get on the cocktail circuit internationally and away they go. Rodney, did you and your guests know Julie Ann Gender is running transgender drag queen functions as fundraiser, putting posters all around town? I've seen the posters. Oh, I believe it. Oh, my goodness. I saw one Green MP, was it, that she's doing a fundraiser, putting herself on a pole, uh, doing a pole dance? Yep. Uh, well, good on her. Um, The sex-gender issue will bring these people down. Don't bleep with sex. It's a very, very touchy subject. We don't like kinky. Yuck. No. And we actually don't even like talking about it. I actually feel yucky talking about it, but they're sort of forcing us to talk about it to counter it. It's appalling that the abnormal was being normalised. Yep. Who have decreed every country must accept and promote the transgender theory? Ollie, that's right. It's these world organizations that are doing it. Can you imagine the influx of men facing prison sentence, changing their birth certificates to go to a woman's prison? <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because it's deadly serious, but that is going to happen, is it not? Rodney, maybe you try and talk to Catherine Elizabeth Truscott. She's a true trans, late 70s, one of the the first in New Zealand. She's a lady and caught up in this, but knows it's wrong and that it has gone too far. Ollie. Yes, I have a lovely email from Catherine and she is an absolutely lovely lady. And, um, she spotted this happening. She said in her email, 20 years ago, I might dig it out and read it to you again, because it was so wonderful. Rodney, the question is why does, why do 120-plus elected representatives all vote for this legislation? Rebirth certificates when we the people don't want it. Got any ideas why or how that happens? They're all thinking people. Why are they all in lockstep? Great to listen to you, to you all, Rex. Well, I think they're disconnected. I think MMPs serve to disconnect them too. I think they're disconnected from us. And there's a little bubble that they're living in. And it's a media bubble. You see it with the media too. They're not reflecting what people think. Mind you, as it carries on, uh, the people will be changed because most of us, well, all of us really, we get our ideas secondhand from reading the news and listening to the news. And it's only in a very few areas that we take the trouble to think critically about things. But most of it is we just um, take it on board. Jackie, uh, hi, Rodney. I've only got to listen to your interview part way with Ro Edge from Save Women's Sport. Thank you so much to both of you for bringing the information into the public domain. I'll definitely listen to the replay and share the link to others once the replay is up. Bless you and RCR and the hero speaking up and inform us. We can uh, never give up. No thanks, Jackie. It's absolutely right. Row edge is a true, as uh, a true. I was going to say hero, but heroine. Um, probably a heroine. Further to my first message, lockstep does not occur naturally amongst one hundred and twenty plus people without external pressure. Well, I suppose it is pressure, but it's just this overwhelming pressure of UN decrees that we sign up to without a moment's thought that 10 years later the officials are advising ministers this is what's got to be done because this is what we signed up to. Hi, Rodney. So you called Ro your hero. Why not call her your heroine? Thanks, Anna. You're absolutely right, Anna. Um, Heroine is the correct word. And she truly is a heroine. And it's lovely because we like to distinguish between men and women. We love the difference, viva la difference. And I love it that we respect them in differing author, authoress, hero, heroine. I love it. But of course, we've all fallen into the trap of saying, oh, no, they're all the same. Nope. So I apologize for that. Hi, Rodney, I'm a grandma. Our family realised eight years ago that things were not as they should be when our grandson had a
6: vaccine and became very ill. I'm very sorry. Oh, he died three years later. I'm very, very sorry. Three years old. That's when I started researching. I have hundreds of hours under my belt.
1: One thing I discovered is there are no separate parties in New Zealand. They're all working together to bring in the Agenda 2030. They're all lying to us, including David Seymour. The system is corrupt and needs to go. All politicians need to go power and power needs to go back to the people. Yes, I do think we need to clean out. I'm a great fan of democracy, but a democracy can become sclerotic and it needs to clean out and a wash out.
6: And I do believe that they are I don't know whether they're willfully blind or. And how can it be that they just push these vaccines as safe and
1: effective when clearly they're not? And then belittle us when they say, oh, so you did your own research. Oh, yes, we did. We read. We thought about
6: it. We talked to others about it. We reached our conclusions. So don't belittle us, because we're sovereign individuals, Rodney. Could it be
1: that this is what the media is portraying—that the minor parties aren't thriving? Could it be that this is what the—I don't know that one. I'm very very sorry. Um, hi, Rodney. Very much enjoying this breath of fresh air in New Zealand media. Me too. The clear and provable and very concerning excess all cause mortality in New Zealand. I've written to David Seymour, Shane Reddy, and even Dame Juliet Gerard, who Arden, 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 God, I'm terrible with getting odd names. I should know. <laughs> Arden, 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 Arden claims was one of her key people, along with Ashley Bloomfield during COVID. How could it be that we have the Prime Minister for all those years? And then I stumble on her name, and it's Ardern, I know that. And then I was looking at it, and I was trying to say Ardern, Ardern, Ardern. I've asked Mr Seymour why he is using statistical manipulation to claim that New Zealand has had a negative excess mortality. Bloomfield did the same at a recent meeting in Upper Hutt. Those statistics are wildly inaccurate because New Zealand was locked down and our borders were closed for most of 2020 and 2021. Of course, there was negative excess mortality, but when compared to the much more appropriate five years prior to COVID, 2015-2019, we're running at more than 18% excess all-cause mortality. I asked Dr. Retty and Dame Juliet the same questions. Nobody will even respond to questions. The data is absolutely clear. Here is Dr. Jan- John Campbell presenting it in a very simple-to-understand manner. John Campbell's great. Uh... And there's a link to YouTube. My question is, why are politicians and government employees able to deliberately distort the truth without ever being questioned by the media or even opposition MPs? Everyone with an ounce of critical thinking skills knows the statistics show excess deaths that are not COVID deaths are at high levels, but nobody's even talking about it. Is our system so corrupt that nobody's prepared to call this out publicly? Prior to this, the one that stunned me most was Michael Baker being permitted to lie to the public on live radio when he claimed he'd never said that masks don't work. He didn't tell the truth. Nobody challenged him. Nobody in government or the opposition asked him why. How can this be possible in a functioning democracy? Thanks again for everything the station is doing. I do struggle with it. I can't understand how there isn't any tough questions on pressing issues and let's just say that there might be a question mark about the statistics i.e that whether there is excess mortality. the mere fact that serious people are saying there is means that it needs to be looked at and questions answered but nowhere in the media or the opposition or in our government departments is it an issue. Which makes you more concerned, because if, if, if there was a simple answer for this, it would be given. But nope, head in sand. Thank you for reading my comments. Your view of democracy in our parliament was good to hear. The treaty and its interpretation, the new invention of principles is of concern. Original documents said all equal under the law. What's the matter with that? Nothing whatsoever, I say. Now, I hear of some idea of the colonists not having the right to what they did, so rewriting history seems to be the agenda. The Maori Party does not represent many people, and with the Maori seats, it's even smaller in relevance. Glad to hear your voice on this one. Labour might need to remove co-governance and the Maori seats in order to survive. Returning to their roots would be a sensible direction. Yes, it could be dramatic, but their chances of retaining power don't look good with current position. Problem is the Nats are suffering with Homer Simpson's need for suicidal policies. He thinks letting GMOs out is a vote catcher. Wrong. Delaying climate action. Weak. Lowering percentage for party vote would help. Agreed. Neither big party has appeal, so I'm predicting the non-voter will win. A truly dysfunctional election. Predicting top will get either. Winston will get 5%. Labour will lose. Percentage national won't get enough to claim victory. Big mess. You probably shouldn't read the first bit. I'll be getting one of those reputations. Good work, Rodney. Oh, well, you I did read it. Uh, here's one from John. Hi, Rodney. I'm listening to the lady speaking about diet. You should definitely get a copy of the China study, the most comprehensive study of nutrition ever conducted by Professor T. Colin Campbell of Cornell University. It was a 10-year study in conjunction with Oxford University of England and the Chinese Academy of Health. I do hope you read this very important book about diet and health. I have read it. Um, got some serious reservations about it, John, but thank you for that. Um, Andy, come on, mate. Are you serious? Greta Thinberg is a puppet pushing an agenda.
5: Hmm.
1: I might have said something sarcastically, uh, Andy, about Greta, because she is totally a puppet, but it's the way she got elevated um, that I think I was referring to as a saint, but I was doing it, what's the word, sarcastically, ironically. Um, to sort of make the point about climate change being a religion, not about science. Loved your discussion with Sally Faloon. I will be purchasing her book, Nourishing Traditions, today. Good for you. So great to have a variety of topics and speakers. Always look forward to your segments. Thank you. Uh, Bobby, had a, a portion of your interview pertaining to food nutrition, interesting and informative. A highlight for me was your comment. We give thanks when referring to family dining. As a Jewish person, somewhat conservative, conservatively so, this brought me joy, to bring back God into our nation would return us to the foundation of values upon which Western nations were built and thrived. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, From Stuart, Rodney, the morning you used a silly argument that conservationists treat it like a religion. I would say libertarianism and the generalisation that all government is bad is every bit as much a religion too. A love and respect of nature is a good thing and should be encouraging children. And as for the denial of global warming, I can't wait to see your neighborhood taking a major hit. Unfortunately, many people, including business and farming, are switching on to, fortunately, many people, including businesses and farming, are switching on to sustainable practices. Well, I love nature too. um, And I respect nature and I care for it and I plant trees and I now tend to garden. So I certainly love nature. Um, but what i don 't love is a political ideology built out of a supposed love for nature and the earth that isn't true and then can't be questioned and has all the elements of religious zealots. So I draw a big distinction, and so often is the way that our good instincts, our good motives are twisted by those who seek political power over us. And it's like you want to help the workers. And so political parties come along, tyrants come along, saying they're going to help the workers. And they us, motivate us to support them. And they're anything but. And we saw it with public health. Here's what you have to do for public health. But it wasn't about public health. And I believe the same thing has happened to the zealotry in the environmental movement. And of course, we love nature. Of course,
6: we want to care for valuable ecosystems. And we have a deep connection to the earth and to nature. But it's been twisted and turned
1: into a political program to disempower us and power up tyranny. There's no other way for it. And so that's what I oppose. And I think it's a uh, false argument um, to say that one side loves nature and one side doesn't. It's a bit like saying when you oppose lockdowns or mandates that you wanted to kill Nana, or you didn't care about other people, or you were selfish. No, you were having a proper debate about what was the best way to provide for public health. And if you want to look after nature, the best thing you can do is live in a prosperous capitalist society. Uh, The worst treatment of nature occurs in poor countries and in socialist and communist ones. There you have it. Oh, I shouldn't have gone on my soapbox. That was mailbag. Send us a note. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send us a text, 2057. I love your criticisms. I love your comments. And I hope you don't mind me sort of responding, and I'm happy to hear more, send us a text, send us an email, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, thank you for listening.
0: You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality
1: Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, oh, how I loved growing up in New Zealand, Uh, to be fair, I found it a little bit boring, You know, small-town New Zealand, it was all we all thought one way, but in hindsight, what a fantastic
6: childhood. And I loved being in New Zealand because we didn't have a race problem. And I listened to Martin Luther King. And I thought how dreadful it was to be in the United States where
1: not only did they historically have slavery, but they had
6: laws that divided the country by race, black versus white. How horrid that was.
1: And how proud I was to be a Kiwi where we all got
6: along lived beside each other, went to school with each other, played sport with each other, married each other, and had children together. And a person's race was irrelevant to me growing up. And I imagined a world where we would grow into where we'd be all intermixed up and it wouldn't matter. And I went on to study biology, which is relevant to race, because you realize that the differences between people in terms of race is nothing.
1: Obviously. People have different genetic potentials. People are brighter, people are
6: faster, and all the rest of it. But that's not characteristically by race. Some small bits are,
1: but very, very small differences. And there's skin pigment. There's facial shape. There's hair. That's it. Differences between men and women,
6: very big, every
1: cell of your body. And so I realized that uh, race really was a social construct, not a biological
6: one, not a genetic one, if you were classifying us as a species. No difference. And so I imagined no one would care. And yet here we are in New Zealand where race dominates everything. Political discussion, legislation, debate, governance, democracy. And we are now favouring one race over another. Everywhere you look, uh, this is
1: going to create huge resentment, huge conflict, huge tension. Unless we quickly get on top of it and reverse it, and it's hard to
6: see how. Because politically, we've got race baiters who get their support by advocating racial policies. Not to help the people they purport to represent, but to help their mates and the elite. And so the tensions exist in society, are being created in society, aren't even
1: over who's getting what. Because this whole race thing is about a tribal elite and a political elite, and a business elite. Not about you or I.
6: That's just manufactured to distract us, to create this phony dispute. But the real thing that disturbs me about this is the reversion to it to a one-drop rule. In the South, slavery and Jim Crow laws. And they were fortified by a one-drop rule, which is to say you were either black or white. And you were black if you had one drop of blood that was black. Genetically, this is even more meaningless than being black. Totally meaningless. But we've developed and are applying a one-drop rule here in New Zealand. One drop of blood, you're Maori, and you're in. You've won the lottery of life now. Legislation favours you because you're Maori. Every which way you turn, oh, but only if you're in a position to exploit that advantage. But we have a one-drop rule. Now, here's the thing that I observe. People that don't even look Maori are now Maori because they have one drop. And ask yourself this. If Maori were put down, like is presented politically, that they are oppressed by white colonialists. Then, if you could, you'd be choosing not to be a Maori. But of course,
1: to gather up the victimhood status and to gather up the largesse,
6: people with one drop of blood are busy claiming to be Maori, because then you are special. Well, you're not special. You're just another human being, just like me, just like everyone else.
1: And everyone should have the same rights and the same obligations
6: as everyone else, because in terms of citizenship. We're all as special as each other. Same rules should apply to everyone. Indeed, that's what the treaty was about. No special tribe, no chief having power over others, no race
1: being favoured over another. That was the promise and the intent of the
6: treaty, and it was to be upheld by the law. Not now. And we now have a one-drop rule deciding whether you're advantaged or disadvantaged, whether you're a plus or a minus, whether you're a victim or an oppressor. And here's the really weird thing. The big difference in human beings, is sexual dimorphism. The difference between a man and a woman, physically. Every which way, mentally, different. Every cell in the body, different. XY versus XX. Huge difference. Of course, like everything in nature, it's a bell curve, but different. Nowadays, though, you can choose to be a man or a woman. Indeed, as of June the 15th, you can choose to have your birth certificate changed. You've been a woman your whole life. But you can't overcome the one drop rule. That
1: thing that is so absolutely insignificant in
6: terms of difference that gap can't be bridged. You need that one drop. Biologically, how crazy is this? Maori were here for, I don't know, a thousand years, say.
1: Not enough to make a genetic difference. So we can't
6: identify any DNA that would distinguish a Maori from Polynesians. It's not a Maori
1: gene or Maori st- st- little bit of DNA that can be uncovered because their time separate from Polynesians is so short.
6: So this one drop has no biological significance. But politically and socially, it's everything. And when we look at people, we can see a difference in culture and what people do, and how they act, and how they behave. But that's a product of culture and choice, not genetics, not blood. And wouldn't it be lovely to live once again in a world that said, everyone is equal, everyone is equal before the law. We don't distinguish according to irrelevancies like race.
1: And we do understand choice, and we do understand culture, and so we want to foster a good culture and good choices, not a bad culture, not a poor culture, not a bad way of bringing up children, but a good way of bringing up children. People will make good choices, not bad choices, and we know what
6: they are. We don't see the colour of a man's skin, but the content of his heart and the choices that he makes. And wouldn't it be lovely if we could also see the difference between a man and a woman and knew that it was real and valued that difference and respected it. You're on real talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio.
0: People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic and I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation do we end up bringing people together again and what does unity really look like?
3: New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is... COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic
2: government by people who are appointed. It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand.
1: What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated, and you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up.
0: You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for being here today. It's been a wonderful show. Made all the better by your feedback. So send me a text, 2057, send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. And we had along today uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson from the New Zealand Initiative, explaining to us in everyday terms fiscal policy, government spending in total, uh, government revenue or tax take in total, what it takes off us, the difference between the two, the deficit, the debt that the government is piling up on our behalf, And what it all means, whether we should be uh, lying sleepless for what we're doing to our children and our grandchildren, or whether it's nothing to worry about. Well, we had it explained to us by Bryce. I've got to say, I'm a little less worried than I was after hearing Bryce, but still worried. And then we had the inimitable Wally Richards, our gardening guru, telling us that we should get busy and get our strawberries out and how to do it. I loved his idea of putting it along the fence and what we need to make them shine, and garlic and shallots, and I've got to get busy because I've got to get my potatoes in the ground. Well, I've got to prepare the ground and get my potatoes to get them shooting, ready for the ground. That's it for me. It was lovely to have you along. See you next week. Looking forward to it. Oh, and please, Send me a text, 2057. Send me an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And I'll think you don't like me if you don't send me a note. Thank you so much for listening. This is Real Talk with
6: Rodney Hyde, Reality Check Radio. Next week, we'll be back.